could be fun. Let's do one more song and then you and your mommies and daddies or mommies and mommies or daddies and daddies can get back to the farmer's market. Does that sound fun? Okay. Corones, groans, groans you got from touching your gross face. You're super, super, super dumb, a quarantine disgrace. Corones, rones, rones, you got, you never washed your hands. You're a selfish, nasty little twerp, we all had to cancel our plans. Corones, rones, rones, you got, you thought you were so brave. You went to visit the nursing home, now grandma's in a grave. Corones, rones, rones, you got just like Forrest Gump. If you're gonna give it to someone else, I hope it's Donald Trump. You're listening to Bricolage. Truth, comedy, politics. With your host, Lev. On this episode of Bricolage, we hear a new Irish jig from a famous associate justice. The brother without children messes up his nephew's birthday party, and I chat with one of my oldest friends, paradigm talent music agent Harris Lewis. Plus, trivia with Josh Ellis. But first, sponsors. This episode of Bricolage is brought to you by the Oyster House in Philadelphia. Third generation restaurateur Sam Mink and chef Aaron Gottesman combine 40 years of tradition with just the right touch of elegance and experimentation. The Oyster House in Center City. Also by the new LaGuardia Airport. Construction has begun and is scheduled to be completed in, uh, they're working on it. (laughs) Soon, I, I guess. Sometime between now and air travel, becoming obsolete. And finally, this episode of Bricolage is brought to you by the world as we know it. Coronavirus is the real cancel culture. Stay safe out there, everybody. Time for Bricolage Trivia with Josh Ellis. Now here's the question. In the United States, what 10-letter word refers to something that has a title and several different chapters, but is not a book? Once again, in the U.S., what 10-letter word refers to something that has a title and several different chapters, but is not a book? Is this? Hey, where's the birthday boy? Huh. Oh, Lou, there you are. Hey, where'd you put the uh, smash cake? I don't see it in the fridge. Please, it's Uncle Lou now. Okay, Uncle Lou, where's the smash cake? <laughs> don't, don't worry. 
I already smashed it. Okay, you're a real comedian. Where is it? You told me to take care of the smash cake. So I did. Great. Where the fuck is it, dude? Whoa, 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 whoa. Take it easy, Frank. I took care of everything. I ordered it online. I went to the bakery to pick it up, just like you said. And then I took it home and I smashed it. Real good, too. You would have been so proud. Why the fuck would you smash the cake? Joey is supposed to smash the fucking thing in front of all these other obnoxious little shits during his birthday party in like five minutes. See, you're old, Frank. Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not cut out for this father stuff. How is he supposed to have sex with a cake at his age? What? He's supposed to smash the cake? Joey, smash. Smack it up with his hands and get it all over his face and shit. And then everybody takes pictures and lives happily ever after. Ooh. Oh. I thought you meant smash. Like, you know, you smashed... Linda Walcott, ninth grade at Tommy's house. Why are you always bringing that up? Are you trying to tell me you destroyed the smash cake with your penis? No, yeah. Let me ask you something, Lou. Why would I tell you to buy a cake, bring it home just in time for my kid's birthday party, and then fuck the cake? No, that's a... That's a fair question, Frank, and to be completely honest, I thought it was like a good luck kind of thing, uh, American pie, sort of superstition kind of thing, so Joey will have a long life and live healthy and be safe and all that jazz. Ugh, you smell like sex. Uh, you should be sterilized. Donna is gonna kill me. Oh, I'm sorry. I can, uh, I can go out to the curb and look through the trash for you if you want, but it's gonna be a little sticky. My guest on this episode of Bricolage is a music fanatic. He's taken me a lot of different places, including the DJ riser during a Hardwell set at late, great NYC nightclub Pacha. This is before it closed, and yes, I totally fit in. His name is Harris Lewis, and he is even cooler today than he was in sixth grade when I met him. So, but you should imagine that I've just introduced you. Thanks for the intro. That was a great intro, by the way. I really appreciate that. All the kind words. So you've held a lot of different jobs in the music industry. I wonder if you could explain what a music agent does and how is that different from a manager or a publicist? What's a promoter? What's the promoter? What's the agent? Those are a couple all of, of them, questions. All of them. Nobody knows what any of these things mean. It's literally Mandarin Chinese to a whitey. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm a talent agent. I'm actually really just a music agent because most of my guys are, are pretty much just in the music world. But if and when some of my artists start to maybe act in film and TV and I start brokering deals for them in that sort of space, then maybe I'll, you know, I could call myself a talent agent, but I'm really a music agent. And to simplify it, I book all the live shows for my clients. So I have a, I have a roster of clients and I book shows for them in, in, in the respective territories that I represent them for. So it could be North America, it could be North and South America, it could be worldwide. So different artists have 
different agents for different territories? Correct. Ones that are that much more knowledgeable. To put it into a little bit of perspective, North America and the U.S. specifically and Europe are kind of alike in the sense there's a lot of nuances. So I can represent an artist in South America and Australia and even Asia because from a bird's eye view, I understand the players and I understand the landscape of those territories. But Europe specifically, I'd say most artists have at least their own European agent because of how nuanced the market is. So they have somebody living and breathing it out there talking that to promoters. EU regulated air. They're living and breathing. Exactly. Pre-Brexit. Okay, so that's an agent. I'm currently an agent. Well, what about a manager? What about a publicist? Man, I wish I had a flowchart. It's a podcast though, so there's really no <laughs> visual tools here. So I'll throw all my slides away. My PowerPoint's out the window. Get rid of your laser pointer. Damn it. Ah. So I'm the agent. I represent the artist. The promoter represents the venue. The promoter is the one that really is putting up a lot of the risk because they're the one that have to pay for the artist. They're the ones that pay for the venue and they pay for all the costs in between. Production, marketing, etc. I'm the one who sells shows to the promoter. I'm basically in sales. Okay. And then the manager and the publicist, where do those jerks fit in? The manager ties everything together. The manager is the one that builds the team. They build the label. They get the publicist. They get the agent. They're the ones that are in the center bringing all of these pieces together. I am one track, just a talent agent booking the live shows, though I am obviously much more than that. Yes, indeed. A podcast guest, in fact. The manager kind of ties in every single aspect. And that's all the way down to, to logistics as well. You know, hiring a tour manager to help an artist get from one place to the next. Manager is really building the team. The tour managers are the ones in the 70s who had to do all the drugs. To like They had to test them first, for sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. So what is your current music industry job, Harris? I work at Paradigm, which is a multifaceted talent agency that has many, many, many different departments from film, TV, literary. We represent directors. We represent producers, screenwriters. We have a branding department. We have a soundtracks department. Wow. So Paradigm, if there's somebody in need of representation, you guys are there. You're the agents who can do that in any conceivable skill set. Absolutely. Could you talk about some of the artists that you currently represent at Paradigm? So coming from AM Only, which was a boutique talent agency that really was hyper-focused on the dance music world. Coming from there, I actually brought along some artists with me. So my current roster is very dance-driven. And I'm going to just kind of tell you what my bigger clients are because I'm pretty sure the listening audience has never heard of the smaller, more developing artists. Well, you shouldn't assume that. Hardwell, Martin Solveig, Benny Benassi, Alan Walker is one act that I'm incredibly excited about. I think he's going to be an arena act within the next couple of years. GTA, who are from Miami, they kind of live in the Latin base world. I represent Jonas Blue, who is from the UK that has had a bunch of really, really big international hits. One act I'm actually really excited about is these guys, Jerami. It's a two-piece from Stockholm, Sweden. J-A-R-A-M-I. And I typically don't like to put things in a box, but if I had to kind of throw some names out there, I would say this is like house music meets Jamiroquai. Oh. This music is, it's mind-blowingly good and funky and fun. Well, you mentioned Miami there when you were talking about GTA. I know that one of your first jobs in the music industry was during and right after college, you were doing some booking for a small venue down there, right? That is accurate. <laughs> yes, that is 
true. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> so how has the industry changed since then? And I know obviously you've learned a lot more about it and you're now on the agent side rather than more of the promoter side or the venue side, the booking side. What have you seen? What differences have you noticed? What is it like it's now? Kind of a, that's a broad question, but I guess one thing we can all point to is the amount of oversaturation, the amount of music that's out there and how impossible it is to listen to everything. I mean, we've got sheer volume of content. It's overwhelming. Right. And I hear it from labels. You know, you've got your Spotify, you've got your your new music Friday where people are, are really finding some of the newer, more popular yeah. stuff. But those songs could be here today and gone a couple of days later. You don't think that music has the cultural cachet or the staying power that it once did? Or that's not what you're saying. You're just saying that it has as big of an impact. It's just immediate. What I'm saying really is that one big difference between, you know, when we were in college, when Spotify didn't exist to now, is that there's an oversaturation of music and artists. And we can dissect that any which way. One, it's harder for artists to be recognized. Two, it's harder for artists to maintain any sort of success. It can really be cut in many different ways, but it's much more difficult these days to break as an artist. It's all that much more important to have a really good team around you. There's no more creating a track on, you know, on your computer, releasing it on SoundCloud and getting some traction that way. That Those days are gone. I mean, it's like in the 1950s, 1940s, like the, the early days of pop music, artists would record singles with the B-side and put them out and they would do a lot of those and then it sort of turned into the long play you know the LP era right it was the full album and the album was this like cohesive work of art and all that and now I'm not even sure what the deal is but it seems like we're sort of back to like hey listen to this one song that I made that I'm really proud of and I'm oversimplifying obviously but I think that there's a lot of artists out there that feel like once they put out an album that they work so so long on, people will listen to it in one day, just like binging a Netflix. Oh, that's tough. So a lot of artists are trying to releasing a song every six to eight weeks so they can create a story around each of the releases and have that much more content. Right. It's about maintaining visibility, even if you're not actually releasing music. So artists will pick the strategy so that they can have that content out. And in addition to that, they have the videos. In addition to that, they have the remixes. In addition to that, they have their Instagram and their Facebook and their Twitter engagement. It's it's just maintaining visibility. In our world, there are still some artists that can go on cycle and go off cycle where people know that artist is releasing an album, they're going on tour, then they're going to go away for a year or two. There's a lot of artists out there that if they go away for a year or two, people just completely forget about them. Wow. It's also, I guess, that the attention span is a lot more fickle. Perhaps it's because there's so many more artists. Perhaps. It's really difficult to kind of put your finger on the exact reasoning. It's just up to us to adapt and, and pivot to have the most engagement with the fan bases as possible. Harris, what was the first album you ever bought? Wow. The first album I ever remember buying, I feel like the first albums I ever remember sitting down and listening to from start to finish are probably The Offspring and Green Day. Good answer. I think a very common one for people like us who were born in 1984. I, of course, inherited my parents' cassette tapes, so I was able to listen yeah. to, uh, you know, Long Island's favorite Billy Joel on cassette tape. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Twisted Sister. I went with Billy Joel. <laughs> 
No, I think he is Long Island's favorite, <laughs> except for maybe a couple of years in the 80s there. I think Dookie was the first CD I ever bought, but I do recall purchasing Genesis We Can't Dance on cassette at the Virgin Megastore at the Broadway Mall. No, I guess that wasn't a Virgin Megastore at the Broadway Mall. That was like a Sam Goody. I think it was a Sam Goody. Unless it was, what was the other music chain? Not Tower Records. There was like the smaller ones. There was like a Sam Goody and there was... F-Y-E, The Wall. The Wall, yes. And they put the sticker on the jewel case. Lifetime guarantee from The Wall. I mean, that makes sense Mm -hmm. too, because not to out any secrets here, strong recommendation on a book called How Music Got Free by Stephen Witt, by the way. But there's a famous story about Tom Petty feuding with his label. Have you ever heard this story where they wanted to charge an extra buck because they had like raised prices across the board since the last album he'd put out? This is like in the early 90s, but um, he supposedly like fought with the label for like a year and a half and they wouldn't release it all over them wanting to charge an extra dollar. Hmm. Tom Petty, man. I, I appreciate him going to fight for the consumer because back then, you know, we were spending, <laughs> I was spending every dollar I, I had on, on music. Yeah, me too, man. There was a shop by me called CDs and Tapes and I absolutely loved this place. It was a record store as big as like two of my closets put together where CDs were on top of each other, like everything out of order. I loved going in there and browsing, kind of how I go to record stores these days. But there was this one section in the very front called Imports where they would charge at least triple the amount for a live Pearl Jam album or a live Bruce Springsteen album. When you say Imports, that's what the store called it. What you mean to say is the awesome word bootleg. Exactly, meaning they had access to a a CD writer before I did. (laughs) They had access to downloading these. Well, they also had some kind of distributor of illicit content. I mean, the basement tapes were a bootleg vinyl record. I mean, bootlegs have been going on forever, right? It wasn't just CD writers. There's like people who steal shit and do stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely. I loved going in there and seeing what was new. Totally. To me, it was like anything that that I'm not being spoon-fed. I just, I liked it. Anything not mainstream. Yeah, kid in a candy store, totally. For me, that place was called the Music Arcade. Hmm. Same idea. If you searched long enough, you could find some cool shit. And I remember I bought, actually speaking of Long Island's native son, Billy Joel, I bought a Billy Joel bootleg at that store. A CD of him playing CW Post in 1977. And it was the first time he played scenes from an Italian restaurant. Or maybe it wasn't the first time, but he introduced the song by saying, this is a song I wrote at Cristiano's Italian restaurant. Sayas it represents. Yes, it's a restaurant in the town where Harris and I grew up. This is a uh, this is a brand new song. This is a kind of a a premiere, I guess. I could dedicate this to uh, Cristiano's restaurant. called uh, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. The 
Kavanaugh crew are mighty and strong. Only the best schools, we are never wrong. Little Brett with a teenage silver spoon. Perfect and exemplary, this lady is a loon. Crazy stuff. Gangs, illegitimate children, fights on boats in Rhode Island. All nonsense. This is a circus. That's not who I am. It is not who I was. Well, I drink and I drink and I laugh and guffaw. I am a man from the clan Kavanaugh. I like beer a lot. The 80s were a blur, but I'm absolutely certain I didn't dry hump that girl. Why did I keep calendars? My dad started keeping detailed calendars of his life in 1978. He did so as both a calendar and a diary. In ninth grade in 1980, I started keeping calendars of my own. For me also, it's both a calendar and a diary. I've kept such calendars diaries for the last 38 years. Some have noticed that I didn't have church on Sundays on my calendars. I also didn't list brushing my teeth. For me, going to church on Sundays was like brushing my teeth. Automatic. We were all Catholics, so you can be sure. Nothing we did was sexually impure. The calendars show all of summer 82. I am correct and this hearing is a coup. A judge must be humble and keep an open mind. I am still innocent, that is how I find. One feature of my life that has remained true to the present day is that I've always had a lot of close female friends. I'm not talking about girlfriends. I never had sexual intercourse or anything close to it. During high school or for many years after that. For me and the girls who I was friends with, that lack of major or rampant sexual activity in high school was a matter of faith and respect and caution. I drank beer with my friends. Almost everyone did. Sometimes I had too many beers. Sometimes others did. I liked beer. I still like beer. But I did not drink beer to the point of blacking out. There is a bright line between drinking beer, which I gladly do, and which I fully embrace in sexually assaulting someone, which is a violent crime. Well, I drank and I drank, but I never blacked out On that and James Madison's intent, I've no doubt Just give me a chance to prove I'm alright I never got off, but I did love Bud Light I was kind of a dork, my penis was shy Lifetime appointment, so I'm here till I die I was not at the party described by Dr. Ford the question was, in the U.S., what ten-letter word refers to something that has a title and several different chapters, but is not a book? Circuit City, Toys R Us, and Donald Trump are all probably quite familiar with chapters 7 and 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. feel nostalgic like do you think kids today understand what we went through in so far as like one if Harris wanted to play me something cool I would have to get in his car or go to his house to listen to it so you couldn't listen to anything and everything you had to know somebody and also and I think this is a big part of it you had to wait like you developed these like obsessive relationships with particular bands or with genres and like you looked at the release date and you knew when the album was coming out and that was it and you had to get 
get somebody to take you to the store. And if you got to the store, then you'd go to the front and you'd pick up the album and you'd be so happy. You'd be like, here you go. Here's your $17.99 or whatever it is. <laughs> God only knows how much money that is in 2019 dollars, by the way. I mean, we were really getting fucked. But like, seriously, there's something nostalgic about that. And for me, I sort of try to revive it with vinyl records, but it's really not in any way the same, but it's that experience of like discovery. I get it. And, and I, just a little bit further to that, I mean, what I think has changed a lot and it's a real shame is that I don't think kids understand the history of music you know, the older school, the, the the Led Zeppelins and the Pink Floyds and just... So what do you mean by that? You're like your particular clients or just like people of a younger age generally? I think that younger kids don't really grasp the history and layers behind all good music. Right. I also don't think people would have, you know, millennials. I mean, I'm a millennial. Me too, bro. Me too. It's cool. But younger kids would really want to sit down. Imagine going into, like, I imagine taking my 17 year old niece or my nephew when he's older and being like, Hey, you've got to listen to Led Zeppelin, you know, or you've got to listen to Pink Floyd, Adam Hart mother or whatever. They're going to be like, what the hell is this? And I don't know if that's ever, you know, I think that's only going to get worse. You know what I think? And I'm constantly telling my wife, this is, I really believe that our children, the children of millennials, whatever that generation is called, obviously totally fucked but whatever that generation is called. I think it's like plurals or some shit like that. I think, honestly, that there's going to be a huge revival of 90s music. What do you think about that theory? I never really, I haven't thought about that until right now, but that's interesting. You already kind of hear it happening. There's a lot of popular rock music, as well as hip-hop, that I think is like a real throwback to those genres and what they sounded like in the 90s. I definitely feel that, and as far as some of the 90s bands that were big that are going out and doing things now, I definitely see that happening. So I guess that does resonate with the younger generation. I went to Jazz Fest this past weekend. Well, you go to like every festival ever because you have clients and you just know people. But what is it even like for you to go to Jazz Fest? But I went Fest? to Jazz Fest for fun. Oh, you went for fun. I did. Yeah. I went for fun. Though Paradigm represents an array of artists from Coldplay, Shawn Mendes, Dave Matthews Band, Fish, Trey, all across the board. We did have an act Hooray for the Riff Raff that was playing and I definitely went to, to check them out and this, the lead singer of Hooray for the Riff Raff is just she's a superstar it's, she's awesome so I got to check her out but Better Than Ezra played right oh, before Hooray for the Riff Raff wow they're from New Orleans originally I think yes Live and Bush are on tour right now together really? so they're, they're touring together yes, wow they are I was upset when Gavin Rossdale and Gwen Stefani broke up and by that I mean I wasn't <laughs> you had me for a second I mean more like 90s music that's less guilty pleasure 90s music, but 90s music that I think still really holds up and feels vital today. I would put Nirvana, I would put Pearl Jam in that category. Any of the like early grunge stuff. A lot of the female driven bands from that time, like Hole, Sonic Youth, a lot of that stuff to me, it sounds really now. I mean, Billie Eilish, Lord, Maggie Rogers, even like FKA Twigs, they sound like Tori Amos and Pavement and Garbage. I don't know, man. Maybe it's just like nostalgia that's really aimed at people like you and me and not really aimed at 16-year-olds. And maybe I'm like just so old and obsolete that I assume that 
it's actually targeted at me. As we record this podcast, I am literally 48 hours away from turning 35 years old, which means I'm about to age out of the coveted 18 to 34 demographic. So perhaps I'm so irrelevant that I don't even know it. But in my heart of hearts, I just think 90s music, there is something like very emotional and very prescient about it. I think we moved away from it and went to like super pop. And I think at some point there will be a revival. I don't think it's going to be a revival of 60s, 70s stuff. I think we already did that in the 90s. We had that revival, but I think there will be a revival of 90s music. You, you heard it here first, folks. I think that that is a great theory, and I hope <laughs> that you're right. I really do. I think, you know, you obviously throw Radiohead into that, and they, they've gone nowhere and only gone. For sure. Fun fact, Radiohead, they opened up for Alanis Morissette on uh, on their first tour over here in uh, North America. Really? I'm not sure if you knew that, but when Alanis Morissette was like the biggest thing in the world back in the day, Radiohead was on, on an amphitheater tour with her and made zero fans because it was, you know, wasn't their crowd. But kudos to her or maybe to her label for putting them on the as the opener. It was her. It was her. She wanted something different. That's pretty cool. Yes. I think it's guitar rock. I think it's guitar fronted bands that's currently, you know, making a comeback. You do? I do. I saw it at Coachella this year. You know, I think that artists like Krungbin. Yeah, those guys are great. Are just incredible. This is a three-piece, I think they call themselves like a Thai funk band that are just so, so awesome. And if you can appreciate musicianship, you can appreciate these three guys on stage just absolutely the best at their at their craft. You listen to this drummer who is just kind of plays very light throughout and it just keeps a constant beat, but it's so difficult to do what he's doing. And if you can appreciate it, you'll absolutely love this, love that band. What do you mean by guitar-fronted bands? I mean, you have, there really aren't any big bands right now, certainly not that have come out in the last 5, 10, 15 years. I mean, Arcade Fire, Tame Impala, that's about it as far as headliners of festivals. That's true. And unfortunately, headliners of festivals are sort of a metric for the most popular music mm-hmm. of the time, right? I think so. I, I, I mean, I also think that if we're talking about like headliners and we're talking about festival headliners, you got to keep in mind that a lot of festivals are skewing their festival programming more towards a different demo than, you know, when we were going to festivals for fun. So what does that mean? They're, they're skewed towards high schoolers and college students or what do you mean? Correct. But that's what we were when we were going primarily. Yeah, but we were listening to different things and I don't think that it was it was about the mainstream as much as it is now. So what do you think about music festivals? They've certainly exploded in popularity since we were in high school and college and at that time it was like Bonnaroo, Coachella, that was it and like Newport Folk, obviously mm. the ones that have been going on for a long time but you didn't have 80 festivals and every fucking municipality in the country is like, come on out to Echinacea Fest, Doonesbury County's own rock and popular music gathering. I'll tell you one that's definitely going to succeed, and that's Woodstock 50. (laughs) That's a good point that, like, the music 15, 20 years ago at festivals did seem to be a little bit broader, and it didn't seem as aimed only at the hip, new, current thing. What do the artists think about playing festivals? I don't think there's a clear-cut answer on it. I think that, personally, there's so many festivals out there that I think people are traveling less and less to go to certain festivals because they know very well that those same bands will be coming to their hometowns where they don't have to spend money on travel and they don't have to spend money on hotels and airfare and all that good stuff. If the festival 
festival grounds itself, like a Lollapalooza or a Coachella, is just so super special, then people will go out of their way to go there. Right. Jazz Fest, Bonnaroo. Exactly. There's five, ten of them that are sort of premier destination festivals. The rest are kind of competing for what's left. I really hope and feel that some of the more successful festivals may not necessarily have the numbers, but successful in you know engaging with a core demo will be more of these artist-driven festivals that I've seen pop up. Like Pharrell's Festival, The National do a festival. Boney Vare does a festival. Uh, Jeff Tweedy does his own festival. I think more of these artist-curated, artist-driven festivals are going to be the more special festivals to, to go to. You didn't really answer my question about whether the artists like playing festivals, but I assume that's because it's I'm not your job. I'm going to tell you the to... short answer is if you have an artist that's going into New York City and they're going to sell out Radio City Music Hall, right? They're going to play to five, six, seven thousand people there. Right. If you're going to go the next year to go play a music festival like Governor's Ball, and I love the Governor's Ball guys, and this is pure example. If you're going to sell out Radio City Music Hall, because there's such limited slots, you're going to end up getting a relatively early slot at the festival. Early meaning like say 3 or 4 p.m. and figure that's on a Sunday. People are coming off two other days of the festival. There's a chance, and I've seen this, that you're only going to be playing to two, 3,000 people for your set. So, you know, usually artists will go into a festival being like, I'm going to make all of these new fans. It's a great thing to be a part of, expand on the fan base, come back in and do a harder ticket play like a Radio City or, 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 or an MSG or Terminal 5 or something, but it doesn't always work out that way. Well said. Appreciate your candor. The Las Vegas Review Journal recently described MSG Sphere as, quote, a spherical first of its kind performance venue with high-tech video screens inside and out and sound capabilities unlike anything ever developed in the world, end quote. Oh my God. What do you see as the future of the concert business? Do you think it is the MSG Sphere, by the way, which is created by the Madison Square Garden Company, a.k.a. where the Knicks and Rangers stink every night? <laughs> I am blown away by this idea. I think that this is going to absolutely change the game in the overarching like concert experience. There's nothing to compare it to, but this is going to be sensory overload. It's going to really feel like you're not watching the show, but you're in the show mm. and you're part of the show. So like the concert DVD, but like you're in the front row while it's being filmed and also you're having a seizure or like what like what I just really honestly I'm kind of into it but you were talking about musicianship before it all feels rather inconsistent I think that there's going to be a different kind of band that's going to be playing at the sphere I definitely don't see a my morning jacket or a bony bear playing in the sphere this is like something that Skrillex is going to be able to come into and it's going to be like the show is going to be happening all around you it's a different kind of show and a different type of show and again I think people are just going to need to adapt and pivot but the idea itself without really understanding any more about the artists that they're trying to book is it's mind-blowing. So I assume that you would agree that we're in a particularly unique political time right now. I agree. I feel like music doesn't really drive the cultural conversation the way that it did during the many decades of pop music prior to now, certainly in the 60s and 70s. Everybody talks about that even in the 80s. There were a lot of musical reactions to what was happening in the country. In the 90s and 2000s, I think you saw music react to the sort of excess of the 1980s in the music, and you saw 
you know, rock stars being more honest and emotive and rappers speaking openly in the way that that Public Enemy started and, and gangster rap. There was politics. Politics was was part of it. I don't really see politics as part of pop music right now. And I find that really surprising. Short of like the Nipsey Hussle YG fuck Donald Trump FDT song. Like, I just don't see it. Do you think it's a reflection of the current state of pop music? Do you think it's just that people are looking for an escape? Like, what do you think? Another really good question. I think that there are certain artists that have their entities and certain things that they're really trying to to get behind. From a political standpoint, I don't necessarily think people want to get in the middle of how (laughs) tumultuous things are right now. But in the 60s, people were singing about those tumultuous things. Admittedly, perhaps the country is more polarized now, but it was pretty polarized then, and that didn't stop Credence. That didn't stop The Who or or The Stones or or lots of other bands and, and, and artists from wading in. Ditto in the 90s. Certainly hip-hop has been outspoken about this president, and I'm not suggesting it hasn't, but I guess what I'm wondering is, like, where is the protest song? And it doesn't need to be fucking Kumbaya or Country Joe and the Fish. I mean, it could be something that I'm not thinking of, obviously, but I just don't see it. Is it maybe that it's really almost impossible to have a hit song today? Or, I mean, I don't know, to your point about the industry being so fragmented. It blows my mind as well. I can only imagine that people either aren't thinking about doing something like that or don't want to alienate their fan base. Right. I feel like Mark Ronson could do it. (laughs) Or like Bruno Mars. If Bruno Mars wrote a song about Donald Trump or about maggots or about like something like I feel like Bruno Mars could have a hit singing about fucking shoe polish <laughs> or maybe it's Gaga but she's I don't know I mean I love her you're but. saying that more artists should really be using their voice I think a lot of them use their voice to speak out but I don't see it in the music I think it's more common today than it was back then for the artist to just be speaking out to the press they all have a megaphone on Twitter on social media it's not difficult for them to actually tell the world how they feel about a particular issue, but I just don't hear it in a song. And that's what I find surprising. Do you think that it's just because every single piece of content is scrutinized so much that every little itty bitty thing is so scrutinized, perhaps people just don't want to alienate their fans or put themselves in a jeopardizing situation? I really don't know. But you're right, and I hadn't really thought about it, and the country is being torn apart while nothing is really happening. Yeah, I mean, protest songs don't really solve the polarization, but Greta Van Fleet have a song on their album. Greta Van Fleet? Yeah, you don't like them? Have you listened to Greta Van Fleet? I have listened to the album. The last song on the album, I think it's called Anthem, is sort of a political song that the mission statement is basically like, let's just agree to disagree and stop fighting Mm -hmm. with each other. But uh, wait, you don't like Greta Van Fleet? They're very polarizing. I just think that, you know, I think that if you're going to start a band, I think that you should do it in an original fashion and uh, have your own... Led Zeppelin were ripping off lots of black blues artists and other artists. But not as blatant as Greta Van Fleet are doing to Led Zeppelin. I'm sympathetic to your argument, but I think lots of artists, especially now, the culture is so self-referential and it just references so many other things that have happened. Like, I don't really think what they're doing is stealing. And Paul McCartney has said that the Beatles were fucking thieves. All I'm hoping is that the fans and the younger demo that Greta Van Fleet may have, one, are listening to the last song on that album and doing something about it, and two, (laughs) are Googling who Led Zeppelin are. I think that's well said, and I hope you're right. And I would think the members of Greta Van Fleet would feel that way as well. What are the three best concerts you have 
I've ever seen. Perhaps I shouldn't say best. I should say your three favorite. You know, you really should give people these questions ahead of time. That wouldn't be bricolage. This is about bombarding people and making them feel uncomfortable and putting them on record in a permanent manner. I'm just going to go with (laughs) the things off the top of my head. Okay, you can name more than three. Go for it. One of my favorites was Radiohead, the Prudential Center. I was in a box watching Radiohead. It was as much about the music as it was watching Johan Santana pitch a no-hitter for the New York Mets at the same exact time that Radiohead was playing. That was incredible, and that's right at the top of the list. Two was going to see Roger Waters' The Wall Show in Las Vegas. There's more to that story, but my mind was in a fantastic place for that show, and I I absolutely was floored by that show and that production. Well, we don't need no education, but we do need psychedelic drugs. (laughs) (laughs) What's number three? I'm going to have to just throw fish on there because fish deserves... They deserve a slot on your top three. They deserve a slot, and if I'm going to pick one of the very many shows I have seen, I'm going to go with Alpharetta, July 4th. I think it was around 2010, 2011. What an incredible show they did, and they covered Killing in the Name of by Rage Against the Machine, but the whole show was just absolutely incredible. Any other concerts you feel like you should be naming? Oh, yeah. Daft Punk at the Bang Music Festival in 2007, I'm pretty sure. That was their last show doing the Pyramid Period in North America, maybe ever, and that was one of the bigger reasons why I decided to move into the dance music space and work with dance music. Seeing that show was next level, and I really hope that they tour at some point again in the near future. Anything else? The first show I ever saw was the Beach Boys at Jones Beach. I was five. I don't really remember much about it, but it was raining and I was kind of close, so I'll put that on there. Got to put the Prodigy on there, so the Prodigy at Roseland, but unfortunately yeah, with the recent news, news, so I'm just going to throw that one on there. Seen some really, really good shows. Saw Muse at Webster Hall once. That was also an absolutely huge show. Also, I saw Guns N' Roses play at Webster Hall, where they renamed Webster Hall The Ritz. How many nights a week do you go see live music? I go out at least four nights a week. I mean, it's it's second nature to me to just go out and see live music. That means you're seeing at least 200 concerts a year. Absolutely. So the idea of me asking you for your three favorites is pretty insane, huh? It's pretty incredible, but I mean, it it is, but like I can keep rattling them off. I mean, that's the thing, but I I haven't actually sat here and thought about it and I wish that I did. And this is actually an interesting exercise because man, did I, have I seen some really good shows? I stumbled into a My Morning Jacket show in 2007 at Radio City and we were talking about self-discovery earlier. Seeing a band like that, not knowing one song, just kind of stumbling into the show. I've been a fan for life ever since that one. I love those guys. I would say if I had to name three in no particular order, during my senior year of college, it might have been my junior year, I think it was my senior year, I went to see a man by the name of David Bowie at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. That's definitely got to be on my list. Wow. I've seen Radiohead a number of times. I got to put one of them on there. I'm not sure which one, but one of them, I think. I would probably want to put the Fish Festival when I saw it. That was pretty special. The My Morning Jacket set at Bonnaroo in 04 when they had this crazy dudes on fucking stilts and they were doing all these bizarro things. I also saw Neil Young at Carnegie Hall a couple years ago and that was really, really special. He was, it was just him, no band. He was switching between like acoustic instruments, piano. He had a pump organ up there. That was amazing. I saw Dylan when I lived in Osaka, Japan and that was really special because number one, 
felt like I was the only one who could understand him. <laughs> and number two, I felt like I really understood him. The crowd was so quiet and the sound was so good. In my experience in Japan, when I would go see live music, all of their music venues are all like perfectly soundproofed and like just really smartly, intelligently designed. The alcohol and the bar area is always completely in a separate room. Like you have to leave that space and go into the space where the band is playing. So I, I don't know if that's for soundproofing reasons or just because they don't trust people to not get hammered. I'm not really sure. I also saw a bridge school benefit one night in 07 or so. That was very cool. Obviously, Neil. Tom Waits performed for a half hour with the Kronos Quartet backing him. I saw the Levon Helm tribute concert, Love for Levon, at the Prudential Center, where you saw Radiohead and Johan Santana. I don't know why I made him his name sound like Carlos Santana. It's Johan Santana, right? Johan Santana. Hey, Johan Santana. I don't know, man. Listen, we've seen a lot of great music. I think there's plenty of more great music to come, and I really appreciate you coming on Bricolage, telling your story, explaining some shit. What would you like to leave the listener with? Is there anything you're thinking you, you need to say? Go see live music and... That was really it. <laughs> Go see live music. Well, that's good. That's well said. Any particular acts that you're really excited about that you feel like if people don't know, they need to know? Other than Tenacious D? Yeah, you took me to see Tenacious D right before you moved back to LA and that was pretty cool. I mean, they're the best band in the world. So they say. I mean, just anything new and exciting. I mean, I'd say, you know, check out the Chemical Brothers album. That thing is just, you know, really, really good. I actually think the new 1975 album is really good. Yeah, that album's great. We can sit here and talk about new music forever, honestly. Well, I love you, buddy. I really appreciate you coming on the Bricolage. It was a pleasure. All right, lots of love. The girl from Stranger Things, my first initial and the start of my last name. The numbers all go to 11. Episodes. Wow. Do you have thoughts on Billy Joel, music festivals, the MSG Sphere, or your favorite live music experience? Email podcastbricolage at gmail.com and tell me about it. I'll probably die of coronavirus before this ever gets super famous and successful, so please reach out. This has been Bricolage, created and hosted by Lev. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Theme song, sponsor song, and trivia song written by Alex Schiff. Special thanks to Dan Federa, a.k.a. Uncle Lou. Creative Commons attribution credits are in the text description of each episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe and leave a good review. And if you didn't, you should quarantine that attitude, mister. Arigato!